Hello and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today we're talking about Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a series created by Rick Riordan and Jonathan E. Steinberg for Disney+. And today we also have an extra special guest who's been working on some of our mini-sodes with Christy, Hannah Bazina. Welcome, Hannah. Hi. Thank you for the woo, Christy. <laughs> always, always here for the woo. So yeah, you guys have been going through with like a fine-tooth comb in, in your mini-sodes. Um, but today we're going to talk about kind of the series as a whole, uh, which I think is very exciting. So our first question, and Hannah, I'll go to you. Do you dig this series? Yeah, a lot, actually. I think if people wanted like a beat-by-beat recreation of the books, the musical is right there. I think this does what an adaptation should do. I think it enhances storylines that were problematic at some point in time. It builds, it makes it better. So I really dig it. I have my problems with it, but I like it a lot. I mean, if there was nothing to critique, then what would be the point of this show? Yeah. (laughs) There's always something to critique. Does that mean, should I go? Go for it, Christy. Okay. I feel like going through it with a fine tooth comb every week has confused me so much of whether I really enjoy it or I'm really frustrated with it. It's giving me the feelings that like Indiana Jones gives of like, okay, I love it for the nostalgia aspect that and like all the famous lines and all of the stuff like that, because, you know, that's what the community is built around and really enjoys. But there's parts of it that I find so frustrating that kind of knocks me out of the suspension. I don't know, like that holds me back. And I, I think I'm overthinking it too much to like, f- just fully enjoy what it was meant to be, especially as like, not, I don't even want to say children's like a young adult storyline. I will say the characters and the casting for all the characters with one exception were amazing. Like I have no complaints of any cast member except Lin-Manuel Miranda as Hermes. Because like to, he phoned it in. <laughs> Everything, everyone else, amazing. Loved it. He was so. the one part I was noticing because I was just before we started, I finished, I watched the last episode and I was watching the like making of documentary and they had most of the guest stars uh, like Jay Duplis was in like a bunch of scenes. All the actors were kind of talking and commenting and he was the, he was one somewhat conspicuous absence, but you know, he's probably a very busy person. So I don't think that necessarily reflects poorly on him, but. Uh, and you think the edge isn't a very busy person? <laughs> Fair. The edge, the edge. <laughs> yeah. Or is it just edge? I don't know. Andy got, so when I mentioned that to Andy, that he was in this playing Aries, he's like, Oh damn, I might watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he did a great job. He was a good Aries. He was awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, he was- Last episode, he really sold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about how about Colin? You tell us if you dig it, and then we'll leave Lige last because we have heard nothing from Lige so far. This is true. Lige is, Lige is the the real kind of unknown equation in this mm-hmm. Un- mm-hmm. variable in this equation. <laughs> uh, generally, yes, I dig it. Again, like I wonder, kind of to Christie's point, is sometimes thinking too closely about acts of reception and and picking over and really analyzing it has it some has it inured me or ruined me or you know dulled my ability to love things. Um, but no, I think I I enjoy. So <laughs> I mean, it's, sometimes I walk away from things. I'm like, would I enjoy this more if I didn't think about it? But yes, is the yeah. answer. <laughs> 
but whether or not that's the right or wrong way to view art is a discussion for another time. But generally, yeah, I actually I I appreciated it. And I liked it. I liked that um, it felt like it was answering like sometimes with a lot of media these days we ask the question of like did this need to exist this came up a lot when we were just talking about hunger games right mm-hmm. did this need to be created and i think this did fill somewhat of a, a calling where there is a huge fan base out there of people that love this series and felt disappointed by earlier hollywood adaptations which is a feeling i can empathize with and that this series for you know the shortcomings or missed opportunities that we could point to, I think did a good job like answering that call. It was generally enjoyable. I really liked the a lot of the actors, um, particularly the main three, um, Walker, Leah, and Aryan. I thought they were great and delightful at a what is a not easy job to sort of act at that age for characters that age and with a lot of, I'm sure, no small amount of expectations um, and pressure. So I thought they were all tremendous. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a project that was created with the, you know, Reordance Blessing and it sort of was created from a place of goodwills. Did I enjoy every second of it? Like, eh, you know, but overall, yes, I think I dug it. Nice. What I was not you, expecting yeah. it. <laughs> I was not expecting you to like it, honestly. <laughs> Broken clock is right twice a day sometimes, something like yeah. that. But Okay, mm. yeah. All right, Lash. Eli? All right, All right, what do you got? Are you going to be right. the dissenting opinion? I mean, probably. <laughs> I nice. I don't super dig this, but I think it's a me problem and not a show problem. I I agree that I think this seems to have come like from a place of really wanting to do this story justice. And I think... I've only read the first book and it was a really long time ago. And it seemed like these characters were much more true to the book, even if it wasn't like a play by play, but like the characters felt more, uh, true, legitimate, authentic. like authentic. Yes. Um, and just kind of the way that they staged some of the conflicts between them, it felt better than some of the other adaptations, I think. But I just don't, generally dig this story i think i've realized it's like very old school ya chosen one storyline and it has become like i think a little old for me and i'm just i just don't dig the story of it all and i still think okay i'm not disagreeing with you what i was gonna say is actually like the chosen one storyline does actually get like a bit more complicated in the later books and i know we're talking about season one so i'm not like how dare you um (laughs) um, but like it's just the prophecy is vague and it's about like a child of the big three will fulfill this and so at some point in time we have like four children of the big three who could all be this prophesized hero and talia is actually like thalia whatever is it talia or thalia is there a definitive answer on that one they're saying it as thalia in the show which i hate i've always said it as talia and that's how i've heard a lot of people say it Talia feels right to me, but... Talia Talia feels right. She's named after a muse, too. So, however that's pronounced. Mm -hmm. It would be Talia. Ask me later, but there's a whole thing about the way stop consonants work in ancient Greek. But, sorry. Ooh, interesting. (laughs) Um, Anyways, like, Talia is a day from turning 16 and being, like, the prophecy kid. And then she's like, "Mm, actually, I'm going to join the Hunters of Artemis. And (laughs) then that puts Percy in the I'm now the prophecy kid position. So she kind of, like... I don't blame her, but she kind of f- them over last minute. <laughs> and I, I think to Elijah's point too of like the chosen one, 
we've talked about this before. I think we talked about with Blood of Zeus is like, I think we also, we've talked about how like, I hate Greek heroes in terms of they're They're really boring. They're shitty. They're kind of boring. And so when you are trying to recreate them, I like, I like the attempt to recreate Percy because a sassy 12 year old is kind of fun. Like that's why the chemistry with the other people and him is really fun. But the storyline itself is just, it doesn't feel original. Uh-uh. Damn, you think? Well, this this prompts a question for me that I want to ask the three of you of, is this kind of, are we like putting to the test the sort of thesis of Joseph Campbell? The idea that there is like an Ur story that is evergreen, that always works and everybody keeps coming back to the same kind of story. And I think... One of the criticisms that is correctly levied against sort of hero's journey narratives is that the sameness that they can kind of be, the reductiveness, the way the they get the same kind of protagonists, they tend to be sort of singular, individualistic, underscore, male, able-bodied. There's like certain normative things about them that tends to happen and is like, are we starting to see the paint is starting to dry and crack on this kind of model like this narrative model if it was a thing can only really go so far before we actually do start craving new kinds of stories yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think again the problem is also tied to the age for which the books were originally written where yes you have to simplify a lot of things you you know versus books that can still have that narrative often have like just different perspectives, darker storylines that is more engaging for a mature audience. And I think that, you know, I think of Greek myths in a way that Rorden probably did, right? Like there's a way that you can make them, you can easily make them darker. You know, you can have a gritty Odysseus um, (laughs) suffering from PTSD, right? Like from Circe. Or you can just be like, so this guy went on a boat trip and saw a bunch of stuff. <laughs> like, like they can go either direction. And I think it's it's harder for them to be simplified and be enjoyable for a mature audience, which is sure. what Rodin was doing. Yeah. That his audience was his son initially. So that's totally understandable. Yeah. And that's just maybe why it doesn't appeal to all audiences yeah. in that way. And I think, again, that this is why it's like a me problem and not the show problem is that I think that, and and we all kind of know that like Greek myths are kind of nasty and really horrible things happen to people in Greek myths. And a lot of the gods are absolute assholes. And I think, yeah, having it sanitized kind of makes it, uh, yeah, not as enjoyable if I feel like there's not enough nuance but again i feel like that's definitely a me problem and not a show problem and i do think they attempt to like address that right like they have this conflict in world of the gods are assholes and they do terrible things and ignore their children um and i think they do try to negotiate with like you know uh, the importance of power and responsibility and things like that which is good and as you should in a story like these But again, I think it's just not for me. Yeah, that's fair. Um, The sanitization of it, first of all, some parts of it were sanitized by Disney, which like I was kind of upset about. Yeah. Just just kill the abuser at the end of the show. Okay. Just straight up do it. (laughs) And like, don't frame it as like, oh, it was an accident. No, I liked when Sally Stone Cold killed him and then (laughs) sold his body 
<laughs> as a statue and got a shit ton of money. Incredible. Um, and then she like she was that. set up. Yeah. I was going to say, like, the sanitization you're talking about, I feel like that's definitely something that, like, starts in the first book because it's such an introduction. And sure. then, like, yeah. the books get progressively darker. Like, spoilers for, like, the Heroes of Olympus series, but Percy Bloodbend's a god <laughs> and almost Damn. killed her. Um, and they start calling him, like, god killer. So <laughs> it definitely starts to question, like, what makes a monster? What makes a hero? Who is truly responsible for these things? Like, what are the implications of power? It does get more in-depth, but the first book is definitely the most simplified version of it. And I can see yeah. that, like, yeah. he sanitized it even I mean, further. Well, like, it as it should as, be, right? Yeah. It started yeah. as, like, a bedtime story he was telling his son to basically, yeah. like, work his mm-hmm. son into stories. So it's not going to be the most, you know, it's not going to be for Rashomon or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you all ever read the book Watership Down? Unfortunately. Oh, yes. I love Watership Down. What are you talking about, unfortunately? Oh my it's gosh, the made me rabbits. cry. No, I, I sobbed. I like it a lot. My dad wanted me to be cultured, so he read that to me as a bedtime story when I was like nine. <laughs> I sobbed. I could not stop crying. It was a book slash movie that, that it fell victim to this like weird like market like there's an animated film if if you haven't seen not the most recent netflix one there's like an older animated film like a don bluth style animated film that didn't know kind of like who it was for because it was like well like it's about rabbits and they talk and it will be a cartoon so like it's for children but there's like this horrifying dog and general wound ward is this like ogre monster rabbit who like murders people and like so lots of children probably eli and myself included Sounds like it. Uh, watched this like, Watership Down animated and we're like, oh my this god. Like, this is all over my head. Traumatized. I have an equivalent though. My mom brought home a movie for me that was animated. And she's like, oh, this one won an Academy Award. Like, it should be perfectly appropriate to show my young daughter. Oh, no. It was Princess Mononoke and I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> oh, that was like an awakening. Mom I can imagine. <laughs> she's like, whoa, not what I was expecting from a cartoon. I have a massive Princess Mononoke poster just down the hall from here that I saw at a used bookstore, and I was like, "I'm this is coming home with me." It's like Absolutely. the one of the original like Japanese posters with the um, so good. It's just the scene with her like with the blood over her mouth when she's sucking the wound out of the, of Mara. It's so good. Um, anyways, that's a that's like the Colin movie, but we should we can talk Mononoke later. Maybe but. this is why our, our generations are so traumatized. Is the media yeah, introduced right. to very young? No, it's the the Brave Little Toaster. That's the one. Oh, but yeah. Mm. Oh, that did scare me oh god what if your appliances could feel pain like existential angst and like be like feel neglect but <laughs> i don't think that i still worry about that with like my stuffed animals <laughs> my <laughs> squishmallows i feel bad every time they drop toy toy story that's what toy story did to y'all <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we started at the very end with you know, murdering gabe with the but we should we should start i think possibly with this question of we finally get in the final episode, we get the Percy Poseidon meeting, like probably one of the big thematic things the show has been building up. This meeting between Percy and, and Poseidon and the arc of Percy's sort of relationship with his father. So I, mean, I guess the, my question is sort of twofold, which is one, how did everybody feel about that? And two, right, how does, is this different from sort of the source material or is this more or less of a piece with the original work? They talk a little bit more in the books. Poseidon does answer his question and he says, like, Sally is a queen amongst women. I would have given her a palace in the sea with me. 
if she would have taken it, which and for Tridy, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically the same thing. I liked it. It felt very representative of Deadbeat Dad style, Deadbeat Dad core, mm-hmm. as if you will. I did like the difference in outfits between Zeus and Poseidon in that moment right before, too. Because you, you definitely got beach bum vibes from Poseidon, which I oh, was definitely. Yeah, for sure. yeah that's, that, that's, his, um, that's the vibe they shoot for in the books. I was actually really excited to see Zeus because that's his exact outfit, like, description from the books. I was very mm-hmm. pleased with Zeus. He, I was deeply saddened to see Lance Reddick. He's fantastic. Have you ever seen The Wire? Is probably his most famous, yes. but he's yes. also plays. He's one of these actors that is just kind of like never phones in. He's always great. If you've he played Horizon so- Zero Dawn, he's Silas. He's huge in those games. The best work he's ever done, though, is a funnier die video called Toys Are Me, where he plays this despotic <laughs> toy shop owner who's just the most intense human being. Because he has that, like, his whole persona is like, you will sit here and you will listen to what I will say and you will do exactly this. I am the king in this world. That is his whole, like, energy that he nails. When I saw him and I was saddened because I was like, is this Lance Reddick's last on-screen performance? It, it very might well be. be. Yeah. yeah. But he was so good. He was. Yeah. He's a legend. He's fantastic. He, Yeah, he did really good. So going back to Colin's original question, there, there seem to have been two major premises put forth at the beginning of this show. And one is with that conversation between Percy and his mom, Sally, of like, not everyone who's a monster looks like a monster and not everyone who is said to be a hero is a god is. And like, we get that a little bit in this last episode with Percy is asked the question of like, oh, it's like, can't you just like send them an email? And it's like, where's the glory in that? It's like, I know I'm tired of running away from monsters saying that like in this case, Zeus is a monster. So you've got that. But I would argue that in the entire series, there never really ended up being clear on what makes something monstrous and what makes something not monstrous, basically. So I have problems with that theme. And then the other theme seems to be like, everyone has shitty parents, but Poseidon is like a glowing example of, but he's not that shitty of a parent. (laughs) Along with Sally, right? Like, maybe the reason that Percy is an exceptional demigod is because his mother and also his father actually cares about him in a way that a god can makes him exceptional and that seems to go against everything else that was happening and i think that's something hannah and i talked about a lot was like they demonized athena so much as annabeth's mother and they never really poseidon just got a better and better perception through the series would you agree with that assessment overall hannah with that I've never been a big Athena fan, but yeah, I kind of would like to see like, I don't know. I think that I'm super tired. Something that like really bugged me in the books is that like Aphrodite and the Aphrodite cabin is always depicted as like a pink Barbie house, a pink Barbie dream house. And that all the Aphrodite girls, all the Aphrodite kids are so shallow and vain and they don't ever want to participate. And then just like, I don't know. I know, like, she's the goddess of, like, romantic love, but, like, I would still, I don't know, I would still like to see, like, a better relationship, specifically for a goddess like that. Um, Hermes obviously cares about Luke, even though he's not doing a great job. None of them are doing good jobs, actually, let me clarify. Yeah, Hermes, Apollo, Demeter, Ares pays a little bit of attention to them. Those are the ones, like, off the top of my head that I can remember, like, actually showing some interest minimal interest let me clarify minimal interest in their children throughout the books yeah Yeah. 
It sort of seems to me like one of the themes that kind of the show was kind of engaging with, like Christy was saying, that really gets analyzed in the train scene, and I think in episode three or four, where Annabeth kind of explains to Percy that like we got to win our parents' love by like doing stuff, and if we can prove ourselves and achieve the desires that they hold value, you know, if I can be super smart and strategic and capable, I can win my mom's love. And Percy's rebuttal is like, that's not how love's supposed to work, right? You don't just, you're not supposed to earn your parents' love. It should be- um, Unconditional. Thank you. That's the word, unconditional, yeah. right? And then Poseidon kind of proves Must that. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of thing where, yeah, no, but like, I think that's the theme that is sort of introduced, but, and which is a really compelling and I think very important, particularly if this is first and foremost, a show for younger audiences. Like that's a really big idea to sort of put out there. And Poseidon kind of wins over by proving at the end, basically that, you know, his love for Percy is unconditional, although Again, Percy also does kind of prove, you know, himself. So it like it seems like this is a theme that like a really good idea that's introduced, but maybe not fully followed through to fruition. Yeah. And maybe the fault is the hero's journey narrative. But I would argue that Percy is kind of like an inverse of the traditional hero's journey narrative. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I actually I was thinking about this earlier and now I'm trying to remember what I, what I was thinking. Hold on. <laughs> I lost it. I was thinking about it when you were talking about it and then I'd lost it. I'll come back to it. I was going to say, it's like, because I think I'm the only one who has never read the first book, at least. I think Colin and Elijah both have. This goes back to like a really early conversation Hannah and I had was, you know, thinking about some of the changes made. Rorden is telling the, these stories to his son initially, right? And one of the major premises is like, parents suck and they f*** you up, basically. <laughs> and I'm wondering if like 10 years later or so, it's like, hmm, maybe I want to tweak this message. And so he's inserting himself into Poseidon, who is Percy's father, and maybe creating a nicer version of that. Mm. Because No, Poseidon's always been like this. In fact, I Poseidon, Poseidon, I mean, yes, but like Poseidon <laughs> was like, really, he was actually more present in the book. Okay. Like he talks to Percy like a lot more. I mean, he would join the long list of creators working through their complex feelings about their relationship with their parents and their relationship with their children through their art. I mean, Steven sure. Spielberg jumps out most. Um, mm -hmm. right? The Fablemans is the most explicit answer, but a lot of Steven Spielberg's work, actually, you could argue kind of maybe is relating to he had a very complex relationship with his father or the guy he thought it was his father. If we want to subscribe to like an alter theory, which isn't always really the way to go, but like if... Poseidon feels like a bit of the Riordan self-insert, right? Of mm -hmm. like that actually, even though it may not feel like it to my child, like I, I do always love you and I will support you and show up if that's the way we want to take it. Maybe, maybe yeah. not. I don't know. Well, I, I did like, there's the one scene where, are they at a bar or they're like at a restaurant and Sally's up at the bar while Percy is like back not eating his ice cream and yeah. Poseidon mm -hmm. comes yeah. and like they, they talk and they have a conversation that felt a little bit more realistic of like these two people like still have a lot of love for each other but can't be together and like weird family dynamics with their child but they both still really care about each other and their child and so that felt a little bit more real outside of the also I'm a god <laughs> yeah it reminded me a lot of when my parents would do like the divorced couple parking lot swap 
of their yeah. child. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it was like. They don't even look at each other. And I'm like, you can kind of see like the reluctance in Poseidon that he like kind of wished he could be more present, or at least that was like maybe in a perfect world, you know, we could have this family, but it's because of outside mm. forces, whatever. I don't know. So it, that made him feel a little bit more sympathetic. This again kind of calls back to bring it back to Annabeth, the right where Annabeth is kind of inundated in the demigod world of having to feeling like you need to prove yourself to earn love from your parents. And then Percy kind of says like, you know, that's not how it needs to be or should be. And at the end, so like the the parting scene, Annabeth is she's going with her dad to Disney World. Is that the yeah? Like reconnecting with her parents and and like her kind of trying to be a normal kid. Because what I'm getting at is Athena. Like to bring it back to Athena, who seems like kind of still in that. You know, the vibe I get from this character, having only had her described by other characters, is that she's like the parent with like a checkboard for her kids or something that like demands, like you must get into school X, Y, and Z. And like, you will make varsity team of this by this year and you will be first chair flute, like a very sort of demanding parent. It's definitely giving like narcissistic. I want you to be the perfect version of me. And if you're not, then I don't love you. Yeah. Yeah, Or, or even like the divine equivalent of like really intense, like uh, sports parents or dance parents or performing arts parents. Pageant moms, mm-hmm. thank you. Like that kind of thing, right? That like put their kids through the rigmarole to maybe live vicariously. I don't know. We're, we're, this yeah. is this is all getting very Freudian. So maybe we should. Yeah. Back. Well, <laughs> I was thinking like Athena's because like in the myths, she's born perfect, right? She has the armor and she's one of Zeus's best creations and all of that. And so I'm trying to get a sense of like, would he write her in a way that like she always felt that she needed to uh, uphold this idea of perfection and therefore she expects that in her children because like that's how she was raised so to speak or did that perfection just come naturally easy to her that she couldn't understand why her own children wouldn't be capable of achieving that easily as well i have a list of things that like major changes they made how i feel about them and then like some things that they didn't change and how i feel about them I think not changing Ares as a character was a missed opportunity because I think a lot of times we miss out on this dichotomy that like, yes, Ares is, he's soldiers in the trenches and he's gunshots and bloodshed and the violence of warfare. But Athena is the war behind closed doors. It's making the decisions of drop the bombs here. It's we colonized this place. Um, we argued that China deserves free trade just the way the rest of the world does and then try and get their like people addicted to opium, which is also what mm-hmm. they did um, with like the drug crisis in America that was actually like manufactured because that's mm-hmm. the whole thing. Thanks, Reagan. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's like an interesting look to look at like maybe Aries is the bloodshed, but Athena's kind of the mastermind. And I don't know, I think those are both sinister in their own ways. No, sure. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that brings me to then the major storyline. I don't know the subplot throughout that I kept watching, and I got. I, I think I'm ultimately disappointed in by the end of this series. Um, 
is the Medusa storyline because no, that too. had a ton of changes to it, right? Yes. And yeah, I, Hannah, I figured like once we saw the end result of how Gabe got the way he was, I was like, okay, Hannah's going to be pissed off too. It, it won't be just me this time. I believe in killing abusers. I was going to say, it's like, I think the, the best rewrite out of all of this would have been like, Medusa actually just lets the kids go and then, she, but she like, she f- actually feels a connection to Sally because in episode three, she calls him like, yeah. we're almost like sisters and stuff. And then she just goes and does Sally a solid and gets rid of Gabe for her. I feel like that would have been the perfect rewrite. Overall. You're so, that's, oh, big brain moment. That's so good. I would have loved that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That would have been great. That would have taken yeah. care of all of the problems of the Medusa line of this whole what makes something a monster or not monstrous because yes. they had no flipping idea what to do with that concept when it came to Medusa. Yep. They effed yep. it up royally. So and she was so cool. Like <sighs> I loved her entire monster, if we want to call it that design. She looked awesome. She was like sinister, but I don't know. There was like that weird niceness like coming through and it was so good. I really liked Medusa. My read is she as like a monster to put to film is this kind of inescapable like quicksand trap where you run into kind of conflicting interests where you kind of have this adventure hero story and then you have Medusa and like no property or film or anything can like they can't resist like we got to chop off Medusa's head. And then but also there's this whole other baggage that popular culture is increasingly aware and commenting on and and building off of of just like well like the more we know about medusa's story the less chopping off her head feels like a righteous act and the more the ickier it feels yes. and a lot of properties this one in i mean the most egregious example of this i think is in the 2010 clash of the titans Absolutely. where there's like a rewritten scene where the Gemma Adderton character explains to Perseus like Medusa's whole tragic backstory and then like not even three scenes later they're like let's chop this you know Bridges head off and it just feels like it's this weird like whiplash disconnect and what what I'm getting at is that like the show or the property or the film or whatever like it can't resist the like having a scary Medusa hunting people like in a sort of forest of statues and you can't look at her and like the terror and how scary that monster is with the simultaneous impulse to want to really humanize and empathize with her and then these two things kind of butt heads against one another and create this this discord yeah that was what i was conflicted with this like i i kind of do believe medusa had to be slayed in this series just because that is generally how the medusa story goes i think what was so upsetting about it was the fact that like the kids showed no remorse over it Yeah. yeah and then it's like I got the point of mailing her head to the gods. And then the fact that they literally just mailed it back, returned to sender for Gabe <laughs> yeah, Divine. It's like, but like, bitches for you. It's like, I, you know, I thought I would have been upset had they just kept using it as a tool because, you know, that's what Perseus did. And it's like, okay, that's really offensive. It's like just having her head sent back and forth, like, no one really wants it. Yeah. Is like almost worse. So icky. I, I think Sally would have put her to rest at the very least. Yeah. I, it's almost like Medusa does like one last favor for someone who's mm-hmm. almost her sister. Yeah. Which I think would have been a cool. It's like, you know what? Just just cut the, you know, she can have beef with Poseidon and still have like, she, she did have a sense of like, I want to help out Percy because I understand his mother's predicament. 
And yeah. like, I feel like if you really wanted to rewrite that in the best positive way, just have them like come to an understanding or have the kids escape. And then maybe Medusa reflects on the fact it's like, hey, I've been going about things wrong. I've been taking it out on the wrong people mm-hmm. and go and do a solid for Sally. Or maybe, I don't know, team up with Luke and go yeah, right. against the gods. Like, how cool I mean, would that be? That, that, does, that does happen. Okay, that's not surprising because that well, that jives. Like, I was going to ask, and at first I was like, well, maybe this is a constellation, but I'm like, no, this might be worse because in the universe, it's a thing that like monsters don't ever really die, right? Whenever they're slain, they just kind of take like a time out and then get reincarnated. Yeah, as, they reform in Tartarus and make their way out. Yeah, like, like that's how you can have like the Minotaur, like I Theseus slayed him, but yet here the Minotaur is. So like in, oh. a, some way, that, in some way, that's almost worse because Medusa yeah. is just doomed to this eternal repetitiveness of mm-hmm. just like just can't getting her head chopped off yeah but, that's awful but we yeah. let procrustes keep his head i know right. yeah that was the other thing that pissed me off was like yeah, in chapter seven or episode seven it's like oh we have a known that. serial killer we'll just oh let him trapped in the waterbed oh my god doesn't even call up camp and be like hey we've got a rogue <laughs> demigod here do we have like some kind of system to handle that well this is also a, where the world building maybe gets a little weird and you know because like procrustes is he a monster is he a demigod is there a distinction like yeah like the line between like who and what these beings are gets like weirdly slippy yeah because procrustes is just a demigod right you should so be. what is what is he doing living forever like what is he, he doing like respawning this is my own fault for uh Maybe I should have looked this up, but like I was not aware that Procrustes even is a demigod. I th- in my mind, he's just like some bandit that Theseus kills. But uh, <laughs> I just understand these as like Theseus just kills a bunch of bandits on his way back to uh, uh, Athens. Uh, and they're all like kind of thematized and sort of fun and goofy. But yeah, <laughs> sort of fun and goofy. That's they definitely are. a that's definition that's of fun. That's because Theseus is the knockoff Hercules. <laughs> yes, he's the like patriotic civic Hercules for Athens. But there's, yeah. a, there's a guy who's yes, exactly. There's a guy whose whole thing is that he ties you to pine trees and flings you into the air. There's a guy who kicks you off a cliff and for a turtle to eat you. It's so funny. It's so these good. are like characters from One Piece. Like right, they're not like <laughs> yes. Actual. Uh. So, so I recently read something that was kind of mind blowing in terms of, so we know that gods don't like miasma being infected in their spaces, right? Because they don't want to be touched by anything that is reminiscent of being mortal. So blood, childbirth, all of that, right? Have you ever thought about like when Athena turns Arachne or Medusa, like, this idea that it's actually the gods polluting humans, but instead of polluting them with mortality, they're polluting them with immortality, with essence Ooh. of the god. Right? And I'm like, mind blown. And I went to, I, I was, that. I thought about um, Korra and when you see um, Avatar Wan and they're living with the spirits yeah. and the spirits can like possess the body and you slowly take on the traits of yeah. that spirit yeah. and once they Ooh. remove themselves. And I'm just like, so that's what a monster is, someone infected with immortality. I like this. I've got a bunch of articles to write this semester, so I might pilfer that. <laughs> I'll let you know my source. So I was, I'm was, i doing stuff for a conference at Kiamis, and I'm like, yeah, they were basically talking about, like, why do, in sacred disease, why do people turn to magical practitioners to deal with epilepsy if they have this idea that they're being seized by humans, but the treatments are not to, like, be purified in sanctuaries. It's actually to, like, remove 
pollution from the person and then like discard it where no one else could possibly touch it and be infected about it. And they're like, that's what this is. It's like, it's pollution of the gods entering mortals. Ooh, it's very fun. Yeah. I like that. Sometimes reading academic books is fun. Not always. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, oh, I like that. That's fun. Sometimes I just buy textbooks and read them for fun. Like the little Nerd. killjoy I am. <laughs> well, and the reason I thought of that was because, like, I can't remember if it's Colin or Elijah brought up the point, but, like, and I think that's what makes me upset about the series is they never explain that about monsters. They never tell you, oh, don't worry, just... Perseus kills a minotaur, and yeah, you saw it kill his mom, but I don't know. I'd be a little freaked out. I would definitely right. would have been freaked out after Medusa, and no one stops and explains, like, don't worry. They'll pop back out of Tartarus. They'll be fine. <laughs> There's, like, literally no, like, remorse for doing these things. It's like, I would be very traumatized if I had to, like, even in self-defense, like, kick a dog from biting me. Chop off a woman's head? Yeah. I'm just saying. I don't know. So, so I can kind of understand from like an abused kid perspective. It's very easy to compartmentalize because, like, we got to be real. That's what Percy was. He was abused. But I think that's what is so hard about this series and being someone who didn't actually read the book. I think there was some context that really needed to be present there to make some of the things happening in the show a lot less icky. Because, yeah. Or, yeah. Because it was just hard to understand. And I think that's what was a really hard premise of turning 12-year-olds into heroes. And it's not necessarily wrong to say that, like, you know, 12-year-olds in the ancient world might have had to resort to things like this. To, like, killing other people and things like that. That was a harsh reality. People, Yeah, you're in the army by the time you're, like, in your late teens or something like Mm -hmm. that. But we're pretending these kids are just fine with having to do that it is the kind of maybe ya fantasy kind of thing where it's like like you i said uh, i think at the beginning of the episode like there's a lot of violence and it can is baked into a lot of these myths that's mm-hmm. just sort of inherent as part of the dna and then when you port it to a sort of pg-13 pg kind of audience you have to be like oh but don't worry it's okay we killed the Minotaur, but like, don't worry, he's not really dead. It's not the same as like, you know, he just turns into a pile of dust. You don't, it's not the same as like, if you ever have to, and I don't recommend this for anyone, but if you ever have to like kill a pig to like eat, it's kind of rough. But like the point is like killing the Minotaur is not the same as like actually killing a cow. Yeah. 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 Or for that matter, Medusa and like actually chopping off a woman's head. I think that's why I struggle with the Percy Jackson, because I like a lot of young adult series but it's because, you know, like Hunger Games, you know how f***ed up Katniss is after everything. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the whole point of the series, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's just a difference of writing for like high school level versus middle school level. And I totally understand like you've you've got to sanitize things as you go younger and younger. But I, I still think there's got to be ways to contextualize information. Like, have you guys seen Bluey at all? Mm hmm. You watch a lot of Bluey these days, right? I do. I I love Muffin. Oh, love Muffin. <laughs> but they'll tie in like certain storylines that like deal with miscarriage. There's a whole episode about infertility. There's the whole Whoa. episode that like, and it's not talking directly. It's definitely talking around it, but in a very successful way for, you know, the, that's why adults love watching it with their kids because it's like, 
I know what's going on and it's going to go over my kid's head, but like I feel seen for like my experiences in the shoes of the parents of the, you know, the characters and it's still really enjoyable for them to watch. And like they do, they touch on some really interesting talk, even like trauma. They, they recontextualize into the whole scene. Like being left alone at the playground. Yeah. Yeah. It's really well done. So it's like, I know it can be done. It's like, because here I am watching a a show for elementary age school kids and loving it. So like, it can be done. I know it can, but it's going to be done to various degrees of success. Yeah. Well, and I wonder- with Miraculous Ladybug. (laughs) I I also like that one, so. (laughs) I critique it, but I like it. I wanted to talk about Kronos and Luke, which we Mm -hmm. haven't talked about yet. And the final revelation of just generally like, you know, our thoughts about Luke, because I, I really liked, you know, again, most of what I'm contrasting this against is the movie where Luke was very obviously the villain and gets a little yes. mustache twirly, uh, particularly in yes. the sequel, where I really liked how Luke was set up in the show as like the uh, the older brother figure. Yes. Yeah. And but more than that, but he's like, he's the cool kid that takes you under his wing and he's super nice. And he's like exactly that kind of guy that when you're like a freshman in high school and like a junior or senior is nice and cool to you and he's popular and it feels so awesome and you have this connection. And so it really hammers in like the betrayal at the end and not just for Percy, but for Annabeth, especially who has like a much longer relationship for Luke. One of the things I appreciated about the show was how Luke I thought was handled with a much defter hand than he was in the in the movies I completely Mm -hmm. agree yeah it's a lot more similar to how he's handled in the books I have this whole thing about Luke I like how I saw someone say that like Rick Gordon isn't really adapting the lightning thief so much as he's rewriting it as he would have written it today yeah Mm -hmm. and I really agree with that especially like when we see things like Luke and his behavior First of all, a moment of silence for all the TikTok girlies who were absolutely convinced he was not the traitor and were making the little edits for him. In a world of boys, he's a gentleman. They are. <laughs> they are screaming, crying, throwing no. right now. They I mean, probably still them. defend him, right? People are still standing for Soldier Boy and the boys, and that guy's like a mass murderer. And like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, the airtight defense is if he's bad, why is he so hot? <laughs> if he's bad, why hot? <laughs> it's, yeah, them's the rules. Honestly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, Luke does bad shit, but he's right. At the end of the day, he is right. Like, he doesn't go about it in the correct way, in any way, shape, or form. But he is correct. The gods mistreat them. And that's what I think is so interesting that, like, we start off the first episode with Percy's narration about, like, look, I didn't want to be a half-blood. And then we start the last episode with, look, I know you didn't want to be a half-blood. Because Luke truly is just Percy a few years older. Around, like, the Heroes of Olympus saga... When Percy has been through hell, he's part of like a second prophecy about saving the world, which he is very disgruntled about. Him and Annabeth had this moment where they're like, maybe Luke was right. And Luke is right. He just went about it in the wrong way. We can't just like kill everyone. Well, like the best villains, I feel like come from a place. Are the ones that are like understandable. Understandable. And Percy has that connection with him. And they, they do talk about that, right? They're like, you thought for a second he was saying things that made sense yeah Yeah. 
Well, and Chiron says that at the end. Chiron's like, Luke's not wrong, right? Yeah. And like, what I'm worried about is that you're going to agree with Luke. Yeah. Or have reason to agree with Luke. The the other touch that I liked was because they're going over, him and Luke are going the prophecy together. And they're like, I don't see what I did as a betrayal to you. I did this because I actually care about you. Wait, mm-hmm. I wrote the line down because it f***ed me up so bad. He gets to the part about the betrayal and there's a like a tense moment of silence. And then Luke goes... I didn't think you'd give him to Grover to wear. Like that's not that's not an apology. That's no. I didn't mean for him to get hurt. It's just it was okay for you to get hurt. And that ooh, I think they handled that confrontation between them so well, better than the books in my opinion. Way better than the movie, of course. I didn't think you'd give them to Grover to wear. That would break my heart. And then of course like Percy and Luke are fighting. And Percy accidentally nicks him and he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And Luke takes this moment of vulnerability to slash at Percy mm-hmm. because yeah. that's their difference. That's that's their core difference. Luke has been hardened and turned cruel. Yeah. yeah. Side note, that moment also just cracked me up so much because it was so Disney and that no one showed any blood or scratches. Because like right? it looked like he swiped right as his stomach and like his shirt is perfectly intact. It's like, where did you even cut him? <laughs> and then Percy's holding his arm and then it's perfectly fine. In the same way that we have to have a casino where nobody is drinking or smoking. Right. I would go to a VR casino though. That'd be fun. Well, <laughs> yeah. the Lotus Casino is a bit different in the books it's got like big movie theaters and an indoor ski slope it's very much it's like a very coked out dave and busters (laughs) well and to be fair that's what a lot of actual casinos in vegas like i went to circus circus and rode a roller coaster inside of it so like there you go roller coasters so we like luke on the whole oh yes i like his characterization i i was sad in the like the first few episodes that we didn't get the scene where like he teaches Percy how to disarm an opponent is like one of the first scenes in the books because he's a camp half-blood for like a month before he leaves on his quest. And so I was happy we got that flashback. And like it was also obviously Luke likes spending time with him and he is his friend to an extent, but it was also they were training by themselves. He was feeding him this rhetoric. He was preparing him. He was I mean, grooming sounds like sexually predatory, but like he was grooming him yeah. for, yes, yeah. he was like grooming him for this role. Yeah. For sure. As for Kronos, question, because this is a one that I threw to Hannah a long time ago. It's like, why a lantern? Why does he look like a wraith? I assumed it was scary. because he's like supposed to be been imprisoned for so long. So he's like wraith-like and gross and creepy. Where's his sickle? Like, that's literally what the death... I yeah, think the, Luke's got it. I think that's I what know, he's got. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, um, Backbiter, that's the name of the sword. It's melted down. It's half celestial bronze and then, like, half gold. So it can kill mortals and gods alike. Wow. Okay. Great. I, I will say saying. Backbiter is a fucking dope name. Yeah, that is baller. <laughs> I don't think they ever said Riptide for Percy's. Mm-mm. They, they mentioned it a lot in the thing. It it did come up. Did it? Yeah, I at one point or something like that. And then in the trailer, they played the was it Vance Joy song, the like Riptide. Yeah, oh, yeah. That was such like usually I hate remixes, but that ooh, that slapped. A quote I really liked from Zeus. I really enjoyed Zeus's entire diatribe and everything he said. What I really enjoyed was like the line is like, 
That is what we do. We snap and plot and strive. It was only a matter of time before he did it again. And I feel like that's just like that. Yeah, that just comes back on the cyclical nature of abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is so present throughout the books. And the mess with the whole, you know, there's this constant theme. I mean, he's it is the most obvious example, but just any stories about Zeus and Kronos and Uranus and all these guys and even Zeus's children is this like Athena. Fathers, yeah. yeah fathers overthrow sons, overthrow sons, mm-hmm. overthrow sons, repeat ad infinitum. I like that Zeus is kind of set up as this like corporate man, right? Because it's like, yeah, of course, like somebody's always gunning for my job, but like that's why I'm the boss man, right? Because like I know how to like fend off the the sharks and keep my spot right so like i run olympus like i run this business and it's all very cutthroat and darwinian ceo Mm. of olympus (laughs) yeah but it's also your family yeah so succession (laughs) basically (laughs) they did so many of the gods so well especially lin manuel i really just he really came in i love the commitment he had to the bit um he really the costume didn't really well he really kind of sold it why was he in a hoodie it wasn't at all like he just walked in and his like 700 hundred dollar hoodie listen uh, hermes <laughs> is supposed to be the god with the most demigod children you're telling me lin manuel miranda they were like yeah lin manuel miranda f- like that i don't even <laughs> want to open up this dimension of does Lin Manuel? Fuck no. Uh, does Lin Manuel have <laughs> children? Oh gosh. Uh, I'm getting a resounding no. He uh, absolutely does not. He has two. So, other than that, who was your favorite depictions of gods? Like, that's what I want to know. I like Dionysus. I know. I'm going to be in the minority. I kind of felt they didn't give Jason um, Manzoukas enough to do because he was oh, more. he needed way more. He needed oh, a lot yeah. more time on screen. Yeah. He, it felt like he was just being a jerk all the time and he was, he didn't get to actually be very funny a lot. Well, that's, that him. is his character. Um, <laughs> he's really good in the musical. He has like a song called like Another Terrible Day where it's just like. <laughs> oh, one of his lines is like. You hate it here. Well, I hated it first. And it's just about how he does not care. And he's like going through like the campers who are coming to him with his problems. And he's like, oh, I hate to break it to you. But that bitch is cheating on you with a nymph. That's why you got mm-hmm. attacked. Stay away from the Pegasi. That's why you got thrown off. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's just being like a terrible role model. But I love it so much. It's a, I enjoy the musical so much. And it's such a weird premise that Rodan comes up with. Because it's basically Dionysus sober right like yeah yeah he's like he's in like rehab or he's cut off he's gone cold turkey and yeah he's resentful of the whole thing which is interesting but it's like i just i don't understand why that was necessary because like does dionysus ever really do anything that bad while drunk i mean how do you feel about sparagmos (laughs) (laughs) those are his followers you can't you you are not responsible for the behavior of other party goers if my cult followers rip apart another party guest which for listeners out there spragmos is this term where the followers of dionysus will tear people and animals and everything they encounter apart limb from limb which happens not infrequently yeah, major party foul. If I am the uh, leader of a cult or a religious unit and my followers rip somebody apart limb from limb, I feel like I would be held. I would be put on the hook for that. But maybe that's just me. But should he stop drinking because of that? Well, or should listen, he just not party? Peeping Tom's people? deserve to get spragmatized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? What is it? What's his name? Pentheus. It is Pentheus. Pentheus. Okay. Yeah. 
Was anyone upset with Pentheus by the end? Dionysus gave him a lot of chances and Pentheus did not take them. He came to him as a twink. He came to him as a god. He was like, I'm I'm letting you. Come on, dude. There's so many options here. And Pentheus chose poorly. (laughs) This is my favorite review of a myth ever. (laughs) For for listeners out there, we encourage you to read Euripides' Bacchae, which is a story about uh, basically what if the dad from Footloose was torn (laughs) apart by the children at the dance hall. Yeah, that's exactly it. So yeah, I really liked Dionysus, and I wish he'd been on screen more. And I think my second favorite would probably be Ares. He was so much fun. The only problem I have with Ares' characterization is Ares is a girl dad, canonically. He, like, what do you mean he doesn't care about his children? Ares loves his children. He's like, he's the dad of the Amazons. Ares is a girl dad, and I stand by that. He seems like the dad with a bunch of daughters who are like captains of the respective sports teams. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's super gung-ho <laughs> about it. Yeah. And they're, and they're out there like, one of them is out there like tugging the other one's ponytail. Like it's, one of them is that girl in the video that the, the yep, college the soccer, soccer player game. who like yep. yanks, yep. yanks yep. the other player down with a ponytail. That's what, that's the daughter of Ares if ever there was one. Yeah. I, I wonder if it was just a front like Ares pretending not to, because I, what I did like is he, yeah, he was he had his own thing kind of going, but he was also like the most helpful to the demigods overall. Yeah. I know. It it was conniving, but So a thought that's forming right now is we met Hephaestus very briefly, and mm-hmm. Hephaestus' general energy in this and other media is kind of a sad boy. I I don't fit in with my family. It's all I'm meditating on the way they've hurt me and all the betrayals and all this kind of stuff and my thesis that'll put forward is Ares is secretly just as much of a sad boy as Hephaestus. Oh, absolutely. Dude, if you oh, if yeah. you go back to our minisode on that, I was actually looking up the ancient sources on both of them. They're surprisingly similar in many ways. And they have different so Hephaestus is if, you know, we want to like put him on the Freudian couch for a second, right? His he's the sole child of Hera mm-hmm. and who throws him out, at least in some versions. There's other versions yeah. where Zeus yeah. casts him it's out from Olympus. Her or Zeus, depending. Yeah. So. For his disfigurement, parental love never came easily to him. It was only through his inventions and like again, having to prove himself to his parents, mm-hmm. something yeah. that him and Annabeth can probably relate to, uh, is what sort of earns his place back in Olympus. And Ares is one of the only children of Zeus and Hera and has no love from either parent and famously there's a part in the Iliad where Zeus basically says to Ares like if you weren't my child I would have thrown you into Tartarus this is how much I dislike you yeah yeah and he can never do anything right he in that same scene he's constantly complaining about how Athena is the sort of favored daughter she gets away with everything he's like this troubled youth in revolt for lack of a better word yeah that's that's always been like once I got older, that became, like, my interpretation of him. Mostly because I think, like, a lot of the modern interpretations of the Greek gods kind of suck. <laughs> it's kind of funny, though, that how the Romans end up depicting him in his relationship with Aphrodite, which is almost like a very loving family man, because like, they're usually surrounded by their children together. And that's why his characterization as a daddy's girl, or their girl, daddy, what? Oh. A girl dad? <laughs> girl dad. That thing. Daddy's girl, Aries. I, I, I'm used like to like labeling my cats. <laughs> if you want a smoking hot take, that's because I actually think Mars and Aries aren't the same god, but. I mean, that's totally Ooh. fair. 
That's totally fair. Or if they they may be like way back in, you know, Indo-European history, but Mars is a very sort of completely different entity. He's this patron figure. He's an agricultural god for the Romans. In Greek literature and tradition, he's this kind of like – the term I would use is he's kind of a Kyle. Like he's just this bratty little punk who's like constantly punching holes in the wall and like doing tricks on his dirt bike. But in Rome, he's he's like kind of a more like – paternal figure he's his ancestor hero he's like the roman god i mean he's one of the he's one of the main deities he's also like yeah a god of fertility a god of all these other things and so he has a little bit more of a like status prestige attached to him and part of it is like yes they're both war gods but you know who isn't a war god in this world but the kyle to girl dad pipeline (laughs) (laughs) truly uh, has a study been done on that? Because if not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. The other thing that was interesting about him and Hephaestus is that Hephaestus is a lot more vicious to his family mm-hmm. than Ares is. And Hephaestus, even actually because of the cheating Ares does with his wife Aphrodite, when Harmonia gets married, he makes a cursed necklace for her. So, like, he even goes up against Ares a couple times himself. It's like, I, of the two, I would not want to mess with. Probably Hephaestus is like No, that makes my sense. Pick. Yeah. Petty king. Something that, I don't know, it probably wasn't meant to be something that made you sad or was viewed as tragic. But when Grover's like, well, isn't there anything you can, there's no chance you can just like say all that in an email. And Percy goes like, where's the glory in that? That actually kind of felt sinister to me. Like he has successfully been indoctrinated into this idea. And of course, he still has Sally and he still holds the gods to higher standards than the other demigods tend to do. But I was just like, no, no, babe. <laughs> please, please. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like one of, I think maybe if I had one critique of the show overall, it is that the sort of interesting questions and ideas and critiques of this whole system that get introduced in the first four episodes, give or take, get a little bit undermined by kind of just the impulse to buy into the whole thing a little bit, partially, mm-hmm. I think, for the the sake of fun and or, you know, for the because it will look cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, there was a similar I had a similar thought of when he said, I'm tired of running away from monsters, but like not saying he's not afraid of Zeus, but just like Zeus isn't necessarily deserving of respect. Then we get that flashback of Luke. It's like, you know, you got to be careful because things that are small but scary tend to get squished. And then like the amount of- Great line. Yeah, the (laughs) amount of deference that Percy ends up showing Zeus in his presence is like, but at the same time, it's like, but I would also expect a 12-year-old boy to be like in front of his friends, say one thing and then act a totally different way. (laughs) He almost gets himself lightning bolted. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. That's Percy's whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's always pissing somebody off. I thought the the fight with Ares was, I thought all the fight scenes are really well choreographed. Um, Yeah, they were fun. I thought it was a bit disappointing when Percy just like called up a big wave because in the books he gets like knocked back into the water and that's what like gives him the strength. But I did like that he wasn't that good with a sword. Like he was fine for a 12 year old, but I appreciated like the jerky movements and how he kind of just like lunged and he wasn't very like concerned about like his center of gravity. And then when he does finally get that cut on Ares, it's just like a desperate strike. Yeah, and I liked that the way that they set it up. It's like, okay, we'll like we'll set the rules. It's just a first blood. So Percy is like, I can't beat this guy in yeah, like yeah. an actual fight. I just need to 
get the See, first cut in. Yeah, but then you know what an Odysseus type of hero would have done and what I would have done? myself and called it a day it's like hey i said whoever draw f- first blood i win well yeah but they had something on the line no no but that's if that's the cunning aspect of right i think, I think there's just, a there's this is a letter of the law spirit of the law thing i think it's assumed underwritten <laughs> other person's blood like not just any blood <laughs> on the movement and choreography i did want to shout out Aryan samadri one of the things i saw when i was watching the making of was you know, obviously he's in goat legs, but like he worked with a movement coach where when they're filming, he has these like, you know, bands, like these kind of CGI bands, basically like socks that are where they're going to animate the goat legs. And if you watch carefully, like when you see it more, obviously when it's not CGI already, that he's walking in a certain way to kind of mimic the way like you wouldn't walk with human feet, you'd walk with goat feet. So like so his fun. movements are like kind of jerky and moot and uh, his heels don't touch the ground because he's got hooves and things like that. There's like little stuff like that that I thought are what puts the the attention and care to detail for that kind of thing kind of puts it yeah. over for me. I think sure. there's so much like the casting, the chemistry between the three main protagonists, the fleshing out of Sally and Percy's relationship was really well done as well the good and the bad and then the special effects like when he's trapped on the throne and the cogs of gold like start to engulf him it was beautiful and it's it's so weird because it's like there's so many parts of this series that feel amazing like far outdo the movie but I'm I'm kind of with Lige too. It's like, but at the end of the day, there's something about the story that just doesn't grab me in the way at the end. I think there's enough there to keep me interested to like keep going and hope like there's growth from, you know, book one to like Hannah mentioned, there being growth in later books that I could eventually is like get really on board with everything. But for me right now, it's it's not quite there, but like all the pieces are there to make it work. Yeah, I saw someone say the other day that, like, we need to give it a moment. Like, if you look back at the golden age of television and their words, Gossip Girl and the Vampire Diaries and stuff. <laughs> listen, I didn't say that's how I feel about it. I mean, I watched those shows religiously. <laughs> oh, I like the Vampire Diaries just in a trashy way. But the girl who gave love that shit. <laughs> uh, the golden age of television was CW. <laughs> that was intense. Uh, <laughs> where that was going. Like where, uh, oh. oh my god! No, the thing is, like, I don't disagree. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Their point was the first seasons were not good, but like we've got to this point with like streaming and shit that if the first season doesn't like absolutely knock it out of the park, then you know it gets canceled and it doesn't have the chance to grow. Yeah. I, yeah. Like one of the side effects of demanding, like, I mean, you know, not so long ago, television shows used to be not good. There was a lot of really bad TV out. And now they just, you know, for better, well, I think for better, like the general accepted standard of quality is much higher. Right. And even to the point where like shows come out and even if I don't love them, I'm like, ah, eh, they're okay. And like thinking back, I'm like, no, this, like on average, this was so much better produced and written and acted than so many other like prior shows like you know 
this is a great show, but like early seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something oh, like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or, I mean, even like first, I mean, first season, like the like HBO and like the Sopranos and those kind of things like changed the game a little bit. But like there was a lot of popular early, you know, popular shows where you go back and watch the early seasons and like first season of Parks and Rec, a little yeah. bit rough. Yeah. Um, a rough. <laughs> and like, yeah, to that point, like they have to, it's such a unstable, uncertain future for shows and art. Like even like, I mean, I'm worried that Netflix's Sandman's like not going to get renewed, which I, I thought that was like as good as anyone could hope a TV mm-hmm. show could be. Yeah. They got a season two. Yeah, they okay, do. Good. Um, yeah, they got but, like, even, but like even that was like. Well, and, he, and just because you're renewed, it's like we saw with Blood of Zeus is like, OK, we know for sure we got another season, but we have no idea when it's actually going to go into production. Like, yeah. Yeah. There have been shows that were like were like nominally renewed and that that's since been canceled because it's it's also unclear, I guess, also following the writer strike, if the yeah, studio yeah. is going to use that as an excuse to like start. And Disney has stuff. this very interesting thing, at least with a lot of their animated shows, that like they would never do more than three seasons. So like even when you had beloved series like Kim Possible or something, it's like they very bleak reason for that, which I learned during the writer strike because it's when you have a show run past a certain point you are entitled to certain amounts of raises and things like that so very often if shows go past a certain point they will get rebranded or retitled so if you're going to like hire all the writers or crew or anything like that again you don't have to give them the raise Such that they would shit. get if a show ran for like say four seasons okay i'm glad that that I know what that that the reason is because it's like because if the reason is it's like we want to give writers or creators like a sense of when to end it so they you know series that end when they know when they need to end are always the best right and yes. if you know you have an end after mm-hmm. three seasons it's like We're okay Avatar the Last Airbender just to say it out loud yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking about um I don't know if y'all have seen Orphan Black no I have not no. oh it's like it's one of my favorite shows they like. Like, fans were, like, begging for it to continue on. It won an Emmy. And one of my favorite shows, but they were just like, mm, we're going to end here. We planned it out for here. I, I love when things know when to end. My office mates and I were having this exact conversation where, like, this is, like, a huge difference between particularly British and American television shows. Where, like, yes. a British series will be, like, limited series, X amount of episodes, done. And then American series will be like, we'll keep renewing and then it's still popular. So we'll renew and then we renew and then, it, you know, and then you get into the later seasons of The Office or whatever it is. And then yeah. kind of it overstates its welcome a little bit. Yeah. I just I recently finished uh, season four of Barry and I, I think love that show. That show is spectacular, beautifully written, so well produced. Bill Hader is incredible. Like, I love Bill Hader. It, He's so they good. Ended it perfectly. Like. I can't see another way that that could have ended, and it was perfect. It was like I haven't seen the last um, the last season yet, but oh my god, oh my god, it's so weird, it's so wild. I usually don't care about like waiting for men to snap, you know, like Walter White type shit. But that's like he starts off the rails, right? So it's like he's not even. I love watching like the tension build as he gets more and more, and then he just (sighs) good show. I love that show. Okay. So this discussion brings me to like one question is like, where do we, I don't think they've declared a season two, but I suspect this has been the most successful thing Disney plus streaming's put out in a long time. So I imagine they're going to keep going with it. How long do you think Disney will milk the franchise? Mm. 
Because there's a, I think someone had mentioned there's a lot of books. It's a lot of material. Yeah, there's like, a lot of material. I would and defer to like, Hannah because I don't know if there's a natural yeah. stopping point for the. Yeah, what would be a logical stopping point? You think? Honestly, I thought I've read the Heroes of Olympus books, but I personally like to just stop the series after the original five, um, the original five Percy Jackson books. They did recently. They, Rick Warden, like, did recently release a sixth, and it's about the original trio, like, Annabeth, Grover, and Percy have to go on, like, a quest one more time to get recommendation letters from gods to go to college in New Rome, which is a whole setup that's, yeah, it's a whole setup that's put up in, like, the Heroes of Olympus series. I'm going to read that one because nostalgia, but... Heroes of Olympus isn't bad. It's just a very different tone. And it's not one I particularly enjoy for the Percy Jackson series. And then once you go off that, you've got like the Magnus Chase books, which are like Magnus Chase is Annabeth's cousin and he's part of like Norse mythology. And then after that, you've got Nico D'Angelo and Will Salas have like, um, Solis have like their own spinoff recently, like called like The Sun and the Star. And oh, there's The Trials of Apollo. There are like five of those books. So what I'm hearing is the smart decision would be to end at season five, but the Disney decision will be to do. All I don't of know. It. I mean, the the producer in me just went like, I just see dollar signs. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly. Like, yeah, so I said yeah. Disney's going all of it. <laughs> We're gonna marvelize this thing now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Case in point. Yeah, I think the best change they made from the book by far, Sally. Because in the book, she is very much just there to be rescued. She, in fact, like there's even a line that's like, mom never gets angry. And it's like, she is not a real person in the books. I immensely love the changes. At first, I was kind of like unsure about it, but I really appreciated all the nuance they added to her character. And in the end, you can see that like, she's still preparing him. She taught him ancient Greece. She tells him these stories. She primes him for like, who to like know who he is before he's put in this world. Um, and even at the end, it's like Percy wakes up from this nightmare with Kronos and he like just tells his mom and she whips out a journal where they've been like writing it down because now she is a proactive real character in the story. And I love her. Yeah. Um, also for disability rep, there's like since 2005, there's been like a big correlation between like ADHD and autism and how that goes together and especially how like autism will be missed in girls and it'll be missed in young women of color, especially mm-hmm. people of color, like go extremely underdiagnosed. So I don't know. I know they're not going to like say it because it's Disney, but I don't know. Annabeth very much gave the tism vibes and I really appreciated that about her. But there's this one point where Sally says like, oh, you know, it's for kids with learning differences. Just say disabilities. Like, it's like when people are like, oh, like, sometimes I've had people, like, refer to me as, like, differently abled. And I'm like, yeah, I am different. I'm worse. (laughs) (laughs) I think the other thing um, that was cool was, and I think an important change was Hephaestus. Because Rardin's original description of him was horrible. And then the actor they cast for Hephaestus actually had suffered a stroke a couple of years ago. So he actually does walk with a cane. So that was really cool Mm -hmm. that they incorporated that because that that is like the one cool thing to consider about Hephaestus as a god is like how many of your gods were born with a physical disability and they're still badass 
for what they do. So it's like, I think that's really important to represent that. I I agree big time. I meant to ask earlier, I was going to ask what y'all think your um, cabin would be or like who your this godly parent would exactly be. exactly the closing question I was angling towards. So Perfect. Like, yeah, to, to finish up, like where, where would we be placed if, you know, I mean, if we're going to apply like sorting hat rules and you get to pick your own cabin, but whose cabin do you think you would be in if you were to be in Camp Half-Blood? God. Can, can I give two answers? Like the answer I would have given at the age of which I would have been at camp versus the answer I would give now? Because, oh, because yes. I know the difference. I would have definitely been in Athena's camp as a young kid because I, I think I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider like I was the smart kid in a small rural school that I knew everyone since kindergarten through 12th grade. And that was my whole identity. And I had to be perfect in that regard. So like that sense of striving for perfection for approval definitely would have put me in Athena's camp. And I think I did like Athena a lot more when I was younger. That has changed dramatically since then. Now I would, hey, I don't know enough about like what the cabins are like actually culturally. The fact that they fully removed Aphrodite's camp or cabin she doesn't really have any, like, they're not really prominent characters from the Aphrodite cabin until book three. Yeah. So I'd probably say Hermes. A good combination of, like, I, I just associate cleverness, but not also, and, like, work ethic with that more than, like, striving for perfection for the sake of perfection. So I think that would be the shift I would see for myself. I think I was also going to say Hermes for myself, but for a very specific Hermes characteristic as that is the psychopompus because I work with the dead there you in go. a lot of different aspects. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So and I don't know if like Hades doesn't seem nice. So well, he's one of the he's a that's forbidden, but does he have children? Yeah, he does have children. He um he has two kids. They're in the Lotus Hotel. Actually you can hear them in the background of the episode. Um like one of them is like um Nico is like cheering his sister on. Christy and I discussed this. He's actually kind of like one of the best parent out of the gods. I know you don't Maybe expect I'll go it. With the 80s then. <laughs> yeah, um, he very much has like the, the vibes of like a single mom who works two jobs, loves her kids, and never stops. I love um, that. <laughs> yeah, he's actually a pretty good dad. Like he gives Nico an allowance, and he's just like, you don't want to stay at camp? Yeah, you can come live with me. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. I go back and forth because if I just say Aphrodite cabin, then people are like, hmm. But I don't know. I kind of think Aphrodite cabin. I think post Barbie movie, like if that's how Ronan had described it, but like now post Barbie movie, you're like, it can be the enlightened Barbie Aphrodite cabin. And it's great. Yeah, I'm pretty good at um, like one of the reasons I'm good at journalism is because I'm pretty good at like talking my way around <laughs> what I want, which is like something the the charms like is like charm speaker to associate with the Aphrodite cabin. You got the riz. The tism riz, as they say. Millennials are going to kill that phrase because they're like, I learned a new word that gets me with the youngins. All right, Colin. I'm trying to find the best way to phrase like in the least said way, but I would definitely be in Dionysus's retinue. I'd be one of his. And not just because my propensity and fondness for fermented beverages, but also because I just crave chaos. Um, (laughs) And I love seeing like watching situations spill out into uncontrollable messes that like, I don't know, it's like chicken noodle soup for me. (laughs) You also just not remember your students' names at all and make them. No, I'm actually pretty good about that. Pretty, pretty usually. (laughs) 
All right. Should we end it? We're at a, we're almost at an hour and 40 minutes, so we should probably yeah. end it here yeah, for everybody's yeah, candidate. <laughs> and also because, Christy, it's almost, well, I guess it's Late. 10 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys all for listening to this very all-encompassing Percy Jackson major sode, not a mini-sode, a major sode. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Hannah, for joining us. It was really fun to have you in on this. Thank Yay. you for having me. As always, you guys can follow us on Instagram, where Christy does a lot of fun things. And you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha